Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly and me. I'm Howard Parker. Ingrained in the bluegrass music business since childhood, Nancy Cardwell Webster has pursued a lifetime of engagement and contribution to the music and its people. After her early days with her Missouri Ozarks family band and later performance experiences, she sought a career in education, management, and leadership. Nancy Cardwell Webster joined IBMA as staff and later became its executive director during pivotal periods and became involved with many of IBMA's most enduring programs, such as Leadership Bluegrass, Bluegrass in the Schools, the Youth Council, and many others. In 2016, Nancy assumed the role of executive director for the IBMA Foundation, which has flourished under her leadership. For a lifetime of service and contribution, Nancy Cardwell Webster is a 2021 recipient of IBMA's Distinguished Achievement Award. In this podcast, Katie Daly talks with IBMA Foundation Executive Director Nancy Cardwell Webster about her lifetime in bluegrass music and how you also might help. Well, my dad, uh, Marvin Cardwell, played just about every bluegrass instrument uh, well, except the fiddle. When he would play the fiddle, we would all leave the house and beg him to stop, you know, but but he collected instruments and uh, it was like growing up in a candy shop or a, a bookstore, you know, so the instruments were there and the music was there and, and we all just learned from dad. And um, we he had a, the third country band. Actually, his band was a combination of country and bluegrass music. He'd switch back and forth from electric guitar and mandolin and they were called the Ozark Country Boys with Kathy because they had a girl singer who did the Loretta Lynn songs, you know. But uh, anyway, they were the third band in Branson, Missouri, you know, and the ball numbers and the Presleys were there and Marvin Cardwell and the Country Boys. And they played in this, um, it was called Jesse James Confusion Hill. It was a little tourist trap kind of thing that was focused on Jesse James and, and you know, had the, the places where the water runs uphill and the floors are crooked and you could go through a mine and, and try to, collect little shiny bits of rocks and you know, it, was, it was fun and I was seven you know so I was seven my sister Susan was five Ray was um two two or three he's five years younger than me and we would get up on stage and sing Froggy Winter Courtin and Do Lord and This Land is Your Land those were our big hits and I played the mandolin because my hands were small when I was seven and um, that's how we started dad had a a uh, live radio show his cousin Norse J. Crouch in Verona, Missouri, had a, a meatpacking plant, and he sponsored the show, and it was live 15 minutes every Saturday, and so we would go and guest on the show, and and, uh, and so we always, um, we just grew up singing and playing, you know, that was normal for me, and the, the family band uh, got going when I was a teenager, when I was 16, I played for the first time at Silver Dollar City in Branson with my sister and my dad, and then the Cardwell family band played in 76, and quite a bit through the early 80s. And uh, I played guitar, rhythm guitar, and hammer dulcimer. And actually, my mom is very crafty. She, you know, could sew anything. She made wedding cakes. She could use a uh, power saws, and she was a great mechanic. Uh, she took. She was the first girl to take shop in her high school in 1953 in Monette, Missouri. She was probably handier with stuff like that. Than my dad was, but she made a hammer dulcimer for me for a Christmas gift. Wow! And so that was the first one that I just taught myself how to play. And I, I play some instruments um, by reading music, uh, piano, and I took violin lessons in orchestra. 
with your mom being so handy and the whole family involved, mm -hmm. did you run into you're pretty good for a girl or <laughs> that didn't occur to your family? Your parents um, encouraged you to be a, a leader? Yeah, I was the oldest child and it, um, it didn't occur to me. That thought didn't occur to me. And I, I think it's more uncommon with family bands because you have a mix of, of uh, girls and boys and moms and dads and you just sing together and have that sibling blend, you mm -hmm. know, with the vocals and and uh, we all picked up a different instrument. My sister played the mandolin, my brother played the banjo. He tried to play the banjo. He's a great bass player now. It's funny we both settled on bass as we've gotten older. And it, did your your brother continue with music? He has. Uh, Ray is incredibly talented. He has about a four or five octave range, just a powerful voice, and he writes a lot of songs. He's a great bass player, plays uh, acoustic um, bass guitar, usually sometimes bass fiddle and electric really well. But he kind of took a, a left turn in his younger years. He played new wave and, and reggae and, and uh, Motown. And um, he's been in musicals. He uh, has had lead roles in musicals. He uh, studied classical music, has a degree in music and has taught you know, marching band and jazz mm -hmm. band and choirs and all that kind of stuff. And now, you know, it's kind of things have kind of come back full circle. He is a, he was really into David Bowie for a while. And wow, how'd you get <laughs> him back from the dark side? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of good music out there. And I have very eclectic tastes. I, I remember there was an article in Bluegrass Unlimited a few years ago where different people in the industry were, were asked to send in their list of Desert Island albums, you know, that they would want to take with him and I did have a David Bowie album and a Carpenter's album on it on it and I got some flack from that <laughs> but I I like lots of music I can't play it all but I, you know if it's done well with feeling I I like it bluegrass is obviously my favorite but I just like music it's like to me it would be like eating only one kind of food you know well, that's eating true. Chinese your whole life you know Chinese is great but there's other stuff out there but it, anyway to answer the question about Ray he of course, is recording for Pinecastle, their bonfire imprint now, and has three albums out. And he's currently been writing some songs with Jeremy Garrett of the String Dusters, and they're working on an EP album. And uh, I'm real excited to hear it. I haven't heard it yet. But mm -hmm. yeah. So, uh, at what point are we getting to college? Where did you go? Okay. What did you study? Okay. Well, I before I get to there, I, I realized that I could write poems when I was in third grade, when I was eight. And I thought, oh, I can write, you know. And my teacher, Mrs. Walker, would write two lines. Anyway, so she wrote two Thanks. lines on the blackboard, and we just had to think of something that rhymed with it. And I went, oh, I'm a poet. <laughs> and so then I started writing poems after that. And I, I've always loved to read. Uh, my husband will tell you I always carry a book with me, you know, like some people would carry... Uh, cigarettes or their cell phone or I always have a book you know just in case there's an opportunity to read in the car or when I'm waiting for something but um so so you write poems but mm -hmm. when did that translate to music when I was in college yeah and I was um you ask about college I went to South West Baptist College and uh, which is now university in Bolivar Missouri the first two years which is about 30 minutes from my home in Springfield Missouri and then I, you know, got a little braver and uh, went 300 miles away to Northwest Missouri State University in Maryville, Missouri, which is up north of Kansas City, almost to the Iowa line. And so I was feeling homesick, and I wrote a song called Green Persimmon Trees, and which, you know, there are green persimmon trees in my front yard where I grew up in, in Springfield. 
And I still like that song. You know, some some songs I I don't like, or I just think they're not good enough, or I like parts of them, but I still like that first one. So, well, actually, I think I wrote the family band song before that. It was around the same time. So you but, wrote the uh, music to go with the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah, because I you know would sit down and play guitar, and uh, and I I wrote for my junior high newspaper uh, when I was in eighth grade, and I was a feature editor, and I got to interview Danny Bonaduce. From the Partridge family, which was just, you know, we were the same age, so that was kind of exciting. And then uh, then I took a magazine writing class the summer between my junior and senior year in college and uh, interviewed a guy named Max Hunter, who was a musicologist. He would, you know, wander through the wilds of Arkansas and collect songs and stories. And, and he was, he just had funny stories. And so I wrote an article about Max, and he used to hire my family band, actually, to and we would go play gigs where we had to wear long dresses and no wristwatches and all the songs had to be written before 1900 and, and stuff like that. And my dad knew a lot of old songs and, and also there was a, a great Max Hunter collection, tape collection in the public library there in town that we learned some of those songs too. But anyway, um, so I wrote this article about Max, sent it off to Pete Kuykendall and I was just shocked and amazed. He wrote back and said he'd buy it, you know, and there I was, you know, a college student and uh, I've been writing for BU ever since, but um, so he was very supportive. And yeah, Wayne Bledsoe was too in Missouri with Bluegrass Now magazine. Right. Yeah, Pete especially, um, you know, would help people out and yeah. and give them a start. And he was a good editor. He was, and he knew everything. You know, he remembered everything. And I was kind of his writer in Missouri. You know, he sent me to interview Deb Crouch and uh, let's see who was the other guy. Plays like Bill Monroe, I'll think of it later, in St. Louis, you know, which was four hours away, but I was the closest in that area. So I've enjoyed writing for them for years. How many articles do you estimate you've done? I have totally lost count, you know, because I've written a lot of, for Bluegrass Publications, and then I was a feature editor and a reporter for a few years in uh, for Branson's Country Review and the Springfield News Leader in Springfield, Missouri. and. Gosh, there's always something to write about in Branson because somebody's coming in and opening a theater, someone's closing down, so, you know, there's just news every day. And uh, so I, I got to interview uh, country music artists, you know, like Rudy Gatlin and June Carter. That was a real honor. And uh, and some pop artists who came to town, you know, like Tony Orlando and, and uh, people like that. Now, at this time, did you continue to perform with your family? Uh, the family band wasn't playing, but I um, got married to a banjo player from Connecticut named uh, Frank Ertis in 82, and I played in a band with him called Homegrown. And they were kind of a bunch of old hippie guys who were into rock and roll and then went to uh, um, Winfield, Kansas, and discovered bluegrass and said, well, we're going to be a bluegrass band now, you know, or uh, we're going to play bluegrass music now. and and so my husband, Frank, was a banjo player, and I played bass with him from 82 to 89 when he passed away from cancer. And so I had done that, and the family band would play sometimes. But, you know, as, as kids grow up, it's, it's difficult to keep a family band together. And my sister got married and moved to Kansas City, and Ray was off playing rock and roll and this and that. And Frank would fill in on banjo sometimes. I know one summer when I was teaching high school, I was, uh, my sister and brother and I were playing three shows a day in a bluegrass trio, and then we would change clothes and rob a train as hillbillies, you know, we dress up like hillbillies <laughs> and rob four times a day, so it was constantly changing clothes, and uh, 
And then there was this. They had girl train robbers. Oh yeah, we were the the Darlin sisters. It was like I'm a Darlin and one a Darlin, and I think Ray was Captain Buford. He was a Confederate. It, it was silly, but you know it was a tourist thing, and. Um, and they also had this big stuffed dog suit called Winslow the Dog that was supposed to stand out by the highway and wave at people to try to get them to come in. And I did that once, and it smelled like a locker room. I couldn't stand it. So I paid my brother, I don't know, five bucks a day or something to take my turn, you know, to wear the dog suit. <laughs> I was teaching school. I was teaching English and Spanish and a little journalism and art on the side in middle school and high school. And I tenure. You know, I could have stayed there, but I just decided I needed to to uh, have a change of scenery and, you know, start over somewhere else. And my daughter was two years old, and uh, we moved to Tennessee for a couple of years. Aaron and I did, and uh, worked at Dollywood three days a week. And wow. then on the weekends, we would uh, tour nationally, you know, play bluegrass festivals. And the Wildwood Girls did a lot of uh, DOD tours for the Department of Defense, you know, overseas. And I went on one with them that was two weeks in Panama and Honduras, and uh, I was the only one in the band that spoke any Spanish. And I remember we would, were at a joint uh, base in Honduras. There was a Honduran army with the American army. And the Honduran soldiers were chatting about us, you know, this all-girl band in Spanish. And they didn't realize that I understood every word they said. <laughs> and so I waited for about three or four days. And then I answered them. And they just had this look on their faces like, oh, dear. <laughs> but, but then, of course, they wanted to write letters to me and and marry me and, and that sort of thing. You know, they wanted to get to know me since I could speak Spanish. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. But, it, you know, I love to travel. I love different languages and different cultures. And, and as a foreign language teacher, that's something I brought with me to the International Bluegrass right. Music Association. You know, I, I always find uh, people from different cultures and, and uh, countries very interesting. You know, I think our differences make it stronger and uh, most people just have really interesting stories, which you discovered in this show. But I've forgotten where we are. I played with the Wildwood Girls for a couple of years. Uh, ended who, up with, who else was in that band? Okay, two sisters, Kim and Sue Koskella, who grew up uh, around Chicago. Uh, they were based out of uh, Speedwell, Tennessee, up by the Cumberland Gap at that point. And a real good fiddle player named Kathy Canapple. I think she's still in the Louisville area. Uh, we've had a couple of, while well, I was with them, they had a couple of different lead singers and guitar players. Susie Betts, who lives near Savannah now, a great singer. And uh, Terry Boswell, who has since passed away from around uh, Cincinnati, I think. That was all of us. This is a five-piece band. And I played bass and told jokes sometimes because I just come from Branson. <laughs> And I, I couldn't uh, stop. So it was funny after the shows, all you know, all the, the young men would line up in front of Ken, uh, Sue Pascal because she was just gorgeous. She she owns a chain of beauty salons and things like that. She's done very well and want to meet her. And, and all the older fellows would line up in front of me and tell me jokes, which was great. But we had fun, you know, there. And then But then they were getting ready to go on a two-month tour of Europe. Uh, of military bases in, t in Europe, and my daughter was three, you know, and I just, that's too long to leave a kid, you know, to leave her with grandma, so I, uh, and plus my father was in poor health, and he passed away not not long after that, and I just, uh, in 1991, my sister passed away in 90, we, I lost my husband, my sister, and my dad, in three years from cancer. Gosh, that's but, uh, tough. Yeah. 
But anyway, so I went back to Missouri and I um, sold my house in Seymour, Missouri and uh, moved to Forsyth, which is near Branson and worked for Branson's Country Review magazine and played at Shepherd of the Hills in a bluegrass band on weekends in a place called the Engler Block, which was uh, live craftsmen and they would do, you know, wooden, uh, wood carving and glass blowing. And it's fascinating, really high end, beautiful uh, craft and artwork. And there was a guy who would carve wooden Indians. And, and uh, so I would play in a hammer dulcimer guitar or hammer dulcimer fiddle duet there. And then at Christmas time, I had a band, uh, a quartet called the Coventry Carolers, and we would sing in four-part harmony and do Christmas carols. And I was the alto, and we would wear hoop skirts and top hats, and you know, sing and just stroll around and sing in four-part harmony and take people's requests. And it was just lots of fun. We recorded an album, and uh, so I did that in Branson. And my sister had been in a group like that in Kansas City called the Dickens Carolers, so I stole the idea from her. Mm-hmm. And I've I've had a caroling group pretty much since then. I'm still working on getting it together in North Carolina, but I sew. So, you know, wherever I would go, I would sew new dresses and, and uh, put new books together and recruit new singers and, and uh, just keep doing it. It's a lot of fun. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. I like music. it too. Yeah. So um, you're doing a lot of entertaining mm-hmm. and you're still down around the Branson area. Uh-huh. How did you get to Nashville and IBMA? Well, I applied for IBMA twice, and the first time they didn't hire me. They hired a, a guy named John Hartley Fox, who's a great journalist, writer. He lives out in California now, and uh, but I'm persistent. And so when the job came open again, I applied again, and I had a little more experience by then. And uh, I, I remember I did the telephone interview with Dan Hayes from backstage at a, a theme park called Mutton Hollow, and there were birds calling in the background because there was a magic trick or a magic show. Right. And he had, you know, thumbs. Yeah. And, uh, and so I said, you know, in case you're wondering, I'm not in the jungle, you know, there are birds here. But, but anyway, um, he hired me on the phone and said, how soon can you get here? And it was in September, you know, early September. And of course the convention is at the end of September. And, um, so that was exciting, you know, to come in, in 1994 and move my daughter and myself to Owensboro, Kentucky, and, and have a conference just within the next two or three weeks. And, and John Fox was really good to train me in the position. You know, he hung around for a couple of weeks and worked the convention and showed me how to organize things to put the newsletter together and, and how to organize seminars and this and that. And it was a smooth transition, you know. And so we were there for several years, moved the office to Nashville in, I think, 2003. I'd have to go back and and look at my notes to be sure. And then I sold my house and moved to Nashville around that time. My daughter was a sophomore in high school. She was very angry with me for moving her, you know, in the middle of her high school career to Nashville. But it ended up to be a good thing because she got into the Nashville School of the Arts and she's a really gifted flute and piccolo player and singer. And and so she got to play in the Vanderbilt Youth Orchestra and intern at places like McCurry Music and Sugar Hill and for Tom T and Dixie Hall and just, you know, do a lot of cool things because she was in Nashville. She just wasn't having it. And, and we had a great church and I was the Girl Scout leader of her troop. And, well, let's oh, talk about gosh. Girl Scouts. Was, I love I Girl Scouts. Oh, did you really? Yeah. How, how I mean, I was in the Brownie uh-huh. and, uh, and, and then came back and was a Girl Scout and went to camp and mm-hmm. learned to tie square knots and Excellent. all those important yeah, things. Yeah, I know how to do that. Yep. Lashing. 
lashing, right? Yes. Making a little table between the trees. Yeah. So uh, I loved that. Mm-hmm. Me too. And how long did you do that? I've sort of lost count of the years. I, I, I tally them up once a year to see if I'm due for another five-year pin. I'm a lifetime member of Girl Scouts of the USA. I joined when I was seven. In second grade, I was a brownie and stayed in through high school. And I, uh, I was a counselor in training at CIT. And I went on a couple of wider opportunities, which are you know trips to different states that you do as older girls. And flew on a plane for the first time when I was in eighth grade to Kansas City from Springfield. I thought that was the coolest thing. And studied art for two weeks at the Kansas City Art Institute. And there were a bunch of other girls there from all over the country. And then in 76, the bicentennial year when I graduated, I got to go on a wider opportunity to Philadelphia with 500 Girl Scouts and Girl Guides from all over the world. Wow. And we talked about things like solar energy and nuclear energy and the future of the world resources. And, you know, the Queen of England was in town and Gerald Ford was president. And I held the Missouri flag. And, you know, it was, it was a cool thing. And I, you know, I worked at camp a lot. I, I uh, learned to canoe and backpack and done some cliff repelling and, uh, my mom was my leader for most of the time, and she was out there doing it with us. You know, she's been ziplining in her 70s, actually. It's kind of funny. <laughs> I think, or maybe 80s, I forget. She just did it a few years ago. And uh, would go rappelling with my sister and backpacking and camping and very adventurous. You know, my I, mom has a big streak of adventure. What were you I, I know at uh, one point, and I don't know if they uh-huh. still do it, um, that you could get a uh, badge in bluegrass. Now, I, did you have anything to do with that? No, there was a music badge. I got a couple of those. I, I was a, a badge nerd. I, I think I earned around 90 or something like that. I ran, ran out of space on the front and back of my sash, and I had another sash. I'll have to show you sometime. I've got them in a little shadow box at home. I'll send you a picture. Wow. But I had lots of badges, and I was a first-class scout, which is the same thing as Eagle Scout and the Boy Scouts when I was in eighth grade or ninth grade or something like that. And, and uh, anyway, I took uh, lifeguard training and got my first job, you know, when I was 16 as a lifeguard because I'd done the Red Cross training in Girl Scouts. And, and so, and I'd also, I was just painfully shy when I was a kid. And so Girl Scouting taught me to organize things and to be able to speak in front of a group and to, I was afraid to call people on the phone. You know, I was just really shy. And uh, so it helped me. It, it's helped me do a lot of things, actually. Mm-hmm. I always tell people I learned most of what I know about organizing projects and, and making timelines and, you know, all that sort of thing from Girl Scouts. Just because my mom was, you know, in Girl Scouts, as you get older, the girls are supposed to take over the leadership of the troop and decide what they want to work on and what trips they want to go on and what service projects they want to do. And she would sit in the back of the room and say, okay, you guys are in charge. What do you want to do? And we would have to do it. <laughs> So, you got good yeah, training at I home. I did. Music yeah, and I really did, yeah. organizational skills, outbound adventures. Yeah. Yeah, I love outdoor stuff. I worked professionally as a Girl Scout after my first teaching job. Uh, when I first got married in, in 82 for the Dogwood Trails Council, and I was a field executive for 12 different service units. So I traveled and met with leaders and I was assistant camp director and waterfront director and stuff like that. and loved it. And then I took another teaching job. And then uh, after I left IBMA, I ended up back with the Girl Scouts again. I worked for Girl Scouts in Middle Tennessee, and I was their Spanish translator. And also I worked with the faith-based community, so I would go to churches and synagogues and, 
and mosques and things like that and try to get them to start uh, Girl Scout troops. Mm. So that was a lot of fun. And I was, you know, I'd been a Girl Scout for a long time, and most of my colleagues were in their 20s, and some of them hadn't even been Scouts. And so I was kind of like a a resource to them, you know. I would. So what was it about the IBMA job, and what what did you do when Dan Hayes hired you? How good was that job to take you away from what you were doing? I was the special projects director, which is a very vague title, and I think it was an intentionally vague, so Dan could ask me to do 30 or 40 different things. <laughs> so I was in charge of writing. You know, I wrote and edited the newsletter, all the press releases. Um, I was the program person, so I worked with the education committee to come up with seminars. I helped develop Leadership Bluegrass. Uh, I helped develop and run the committee that, that did Bluegrass in the schools. Um, what else? So anything um, program or writing related, I did. Press releases and uh-huh. right. newsletters and... Right. And I, I worked with the International Committee. I worked with the songwriters. Uh, when Louisa Branscombe came up with the idea of having a you know, songwriter committee and, and uh, gosh, over 20 committees, you know, sometimes a year. But we had a small staff. We, we started out with a staff of three and then it grew to four. But, um, you know, Dan was the administrator and the executive director and worked with the board and, and did fund development with sponsorship. And Jill, um, Susan Cook before her, and then Jill Snyder Crabtree, after that, uh, organized the business conference and, and uh, maintained the databases and did membership and things like that. And, and I did everything else, you know, so I did the program part of, uh, of what, what goes on at IBMA, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of work. You know, it's important to get people to join, but when, once they join, to keep them as members, you have to give them uh, member services and programs and, and ways to get involved and, and it benefits, you know, to, to being a member. And so, you know, I was involved in, in trying to create good communications and programs that would, would make people feel a part of it and, and want to continue so that we could, you know, continue supporting bluegrass music and help it grow. You had to have a great memory for names and a lot of diplomatic skills to deal with the different personalities that are members of IBMA. Right, right. And I'm, you know, the name tags at World of Bluegrass really help. <laughs> but uh, still, but yeah, you remember people, you know, after, uh, you know, Richard Gillardin would call from Alaska every year to, to register on the telephone. He'd go, oh, I'm glad I got you. you know. And it was just, you know, and I really enjoyed uh, talking to the people from outside the United States. I was... Uh, you know, such a compliment to the music and the organization that people outside America would want to be a part of it, you know, and it is an international organization. Um, I I came up with the idea of starting the Youth Council for IBMA. I thought that was important to to give young people leadership roles because they, you know, pretty much all of us, a lot of us in bluegrass music play music when we were younger, but we don't all end up doing it professionally for one reason or another. Um, but we end up doing different things, you know, having radio shows, um, running festivals, running associations, uh, whatever, you know. And, and I said, you know, look around the room. I remember the first year I was talking to those kids in teenage in uh, high school. These are the people you're going to be working with in Bluegrass the rest of your lives. So if you can get to know each other now and develop good working relationships, it's just going to help you later, no matter, you know, what you end up doing, whether you end up being the next Allison Krauss or Tony Rice or whatever, or if you end up doing something related, 
you know, it's, it's going to help to know each other. Yeah, there are a lot of industry people mm-hmm. uh, to support this music. Yes. Yeah, when you walk out in the field and there's a tent and sound system and all that, that mm-hmm. didn't just grow there off-season. <laughs> a lot of people have to put it together. Right. Uh, sound people, riggers, uh, uh-huh. the whole thing. So uh, we found a great interest in the variety of people. You know, And then there's the uh, people who run the booths and sell jewelry and, and instruments, instruments and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So... There are a lot of people outside the music. Yeah, and it takes everyone, mm-hmm. you know, to, to do everything. And uh, it's, you know, a very diverse community as far as you know, different roles that we play and, and geographically where it takes place. And, and, you know, just the idea of working for a bluegrass trade association. I, when I was in seventh grade, when I was 12, I decided I really wanted to be a junior high Spanish and English teacher because I loved writing and, and I love Spanish and love Spanish as much as I like bluegrass actually it's it's like playing another instrument it's just a, a channel I flip in my head or I dream in Spanish sometimes or, or sometimes I listen to the radio and I translate the songs in my head you know um, as I hear them it just as practice wow <laughs> but anyway because I you know nobody in my family spoke it it's just kind of a fluke yeah, we didn't mention the book you wrote about Dolly oh yeah yeah um, there was a, a publisher, well, actually, a, a journalist friend of mine in Nashville was asked to write the book, and he didn't have time or wasn't interested or whether, whatever, and so recommended me, and I just got this call out of the blue from a publisher asking if I would be interested in writing a book about Dolly Parton's songwriting, and they have a series of books about different artists from different genres of music who write most of their own material, and they'd never done one on a country artist before, so Dolly was the first one. And, you know, of course, I've always admired her as an artist and a writer and a businesswoman. Just brilliant, you know, so successful and so generous. And um, I've met her a few times, and so I said, sure, I'll try it. And and I got, um, I was very lucky to um, to have Les Leverett, the, the famous photographer, you know, who was on the staff at the Grand Ole Opry for years, give me his photographs to use in that book. So the, the book is, it's too expensive. But it's probably worth the price just for Les's photographs, I'll say that. So I spent a lot of lunch hours over at the Country Music Hall of Fame with headphones on, listening to all the old Dolly Parton albums. And and uh, it was you know kind of an analysis of her writing and her songs. And uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I've written articles mostly, you know, since I was 13. A book is a heck of a lot more work. And I promised myself that I would never write another book and work full time at the same time. It about killed me. Tell us about the trade, I mean, the foundation. Well, the IBMA Foundation was originally called the Foundation for Bluegrass Music, and IBMA created it back in 2007 when a a fellow named Richard Barnhart left some money in his estate to be used for bluegrass educational projects. And IBMA at that time, until just the last three years, two or three years, was a 501c6 trade association. Mm -hmm. And so they needed to start a 501c3 charitable organization, you know, that that could accept those funds. And and so, you know, now people can make donations and and use that as a, a, a tax credit and that sort of thing. And actually, um, IBMA is now um, 501c3, now uh, under Paul Scheminger's leadership. 
But anyway, so that was started back then. And IBMA had already started a Bluegrass in the Schools program with Tim Stafford and then Greg Cahill and his wife were involved in, in uh, and I was involved in, in writing a Bluegrass in the Schools implementation manual, just giving people advice on you know, teachers as well as musicians on how, how practically can you take Bluegrass music in the classroom and use it. And this is how Special Consensus does their presentations. And, and Greg Cahill has been so generous to share tips you know he has it on a website you know any band that is interested in how to put a good program together for school can just go steal greg's ideas and he doesn't mind <laughs> but um anyway then we um created the discover bluegrass dvd that was hosted by sierra hole and ryan holiday when they were 13 years old so that was a few years ago and we still have that uh, the chapters are up on our website but uh, anyway so it, the bluegrass in the school started out as a part of ibma and then the Foundation for Bluegrass Music was created, and they um, we did teacher workshops. You know, I would go to different festivals all over the country. Tom Kopp helped me out a lot. He was at, at the Bluegrass in the Schools chair, committee chair at that time, and he taught students how to be teachers at um, a university in Ohio, so that's what he did for a living. And, and uh, we would do these utilizing Bluegrass Music in the Classroom uh, workshops and give the teachers a free festival pass for the weekend and and they they always said gosh this is the most fun I've had at a teacher workshop in my entire career <laughs> and they would take a lesson on the banjo and they would learn how to sing harmony by ear and they would learn the instruments in the bluegrass band and learn a little bit about the history of the music they would see a youth band perform you know and get to talk to the kids and ask them why they like playing bluegrass and how they got started and we give them a DVD, you know. And so just hundreds of those are out all over the country at schools and libraries still. And uh, one of the, the early projects, well, two early projects that the foundation was involved in, uh, one is many grants. Uh, we give, uh, year-round, we give a grant. It used to be $300. Now it's $500 to help a school pay a band to come in and do a presentation for students. Or sometimes it's at a bluegrass festival. Sometimes it's at a Boy Scout camp or you know, anything for youth, basically. And then we have project grants that we give out once a year. And uh, those are usually $2,000, $3,000 a piece, something like that. And this coming year, we budgeted to give away $20,000 over the course of the year for that. And um, so what that does, so that the foundation, the purpose of the foundation is we're an organization that that supports programs and initiatives that foster the growth of bluegrass music. And so and we work in the areas of education, arts and culture, literary, academic programs, and uh, historic preservation, you know. But most of it's education, and a lot of it's for kids. And so since I'm the one staff person, I can't go out and run all these programs myself. We There are wonderful programs and, you know, after-school bluegrass clubs and, and bluegrass workshops for kids at festivals and just all sorts of different things going on. And so they apply for, for help, and we fund them, and they go do the good work, you know, and we, we uh, accept donations, and, and uh, so it's run by uh, philanthropy and estate planning, you know, people that leave funds for us in their wills and, and just make donations. And uh, what it's, it's grown, you know, since I've, I've been in the, the executive director position since uh, 2015, 16, something like that. Um, we now give away uh, different, I think five different college scholarships, the Sally Ann Forrester Scholarship, which is for female bluegrass musicians majoring in anything. 
there's the new IBMA Bluegrass College uh, scholarship for students interested in becoming involved in bluegrass music professionally in some way uh, as a musician or something else, you know, sound engineer, broadcaster, instrument builder, whatever. Um, and then we have one uh, for songwriters, the Rick Lang Music Songwriter Scholarship that Rick and Wendy Lang fund every year and uh, to help them with their college expenses. We have one, another new one that's funded by the Crandall Creek Band in West Virginia that's for um, students interested in bluegrass music that can be majoring in anything. And uh, what else? We have the Neil Rosenberg Bluegrass Scholar Award, which is for academic research in the field of bluegrass music. And uh, uh, he wrote the definitive book on bluegrass. He did. Yeah, he wrote uh, Bluegrass of History. Uh, and so uh, we were happy to, to name that after him. Um, Arnold. Right. Yeah, I was going to say the Scholar Award. It's for, you know, the person has to write a good paper that's related to bluegrass and present it at an academic conference. And the best one that of the year is the one that gets that award. And then just in the summer of 2020, uh, the Arnold Schultz Fund was created. And it, the idea came up through a, a conversation online among Leadership Bluegrass alumni. And that, that's another program I, I worked with a whole lot when I was on staff at, at IBMA is Leadership Bluegrass. It's a great program. And uh, so James Reams out in, in Arizona made a comic, a comment, and Fred Bartenstein kind of countered with a suggestion, and, and they, uh, they decided that, uh, or, you know, Fred said, well, the foundation can do that. You know, we could create a, a program that helps people of color become more interested in bluegrass music or encourages, you know, more involvement in bluegrass music. And if... If you uh, pledge $300, I will too. And so they both sent me $300. And, and we, you know, just a little bit over a year, we've raised over $70,000, Katie. You know, so for that one scholarship? Yeah, no, for that one fund, yeah. And we put some of it in an endowment, so it'll continue to be funded in the future. And we've given the first round of grants away last year, a little over $12,000. And then we plan to give some more away in the, in the next few months, around March. And uh, we continue to... We plan to continue to keep doing it. You know, it's, it's if someone's listening and they want to be generous, uh -huh. <laughs> how do they make a donation? Where do they read more about you? Right, we have a a newly updated website. Go, I worked really hard on it. Y'all go look at it. It's at bluegrassfoundation.org, and uh, there's a tab at the top that says, uh, you know, donate, and and we we'd be happy to have your support. And happy to have you get involved. We have a free newsletter called the Cornerstone that comes out the first of every month that I write and, and sign up for that. We'd love to stay in touch with you and you can donate specifically, you know, to the Schultz fund or to one of the colleges or to, you know, something to be used for youth, or you could just say, use it in the best way you can find and, and we'll do that. So and the foundation is growing, you know, the last uh, three or four years in particular, it's, it's, and we were like everyone, we were really concerned about the pandemic. You know, we thought, Will people, if they're losing their jobs, they have to stay home, you know, they can't play. Will they be able to support charities like, like they have in the past? But, but you know, we've been very blessed and, and the donations have continued to come in from individuals and businesses and foundations. And uh, Steve Martin's foundation uh, sent us $25,000 for the wow. Schultz Fund. Yeah, and uh, another foundation called the Purple Crayon Foundation out in the Northwest um, Send us a big check. We appreciate that. And um, Lee Zappas, who created the uh, carbon fiber 
uh, Z mandolins gave us his last mandolin. He came up with this idea of uh, building a, a carbon fiber mandolin that, that doesn't go out of tune, that you can, you know, play out in the rain and take in your festival tent in the heat and it, you know, doesn't hurt it, travel with it. But he uh, only wanted to make 25 of them. You know, he's, he's interested in lots of different projects and this is just one of many. He loves bluegrass. And so we got the last one and raffled that off and uh, I think made $16,000 from that. The Pisca Banjo Company made uh, an old-time banjo, claw hammer banjo. I think you bought a raffle ticket for that. I'm sure he yeah. did. <laughs> Those <laughs> are beautiful banjo banjos. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, donated um, some funds to us. I can't remember. Well, that. I know that during banjo, like that. when I was yeah. at Leadership Bluegrass, uh-huh. You know, brought a bunch of banjos in for uh-huh. the people to learn with. So right. I think they're supportive of bluegrass in many different ways. They really are, and they would always. Um, we we they donated some banjos to us, and we bought some at a highly discounted rate when I was still at IBMA, and I I still have them actually in my house office. Um, I have about fifteen banjos leaning against my desk. It's a very cheerful sight when I go into work. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, they're they're great beginner banjos and, and we use them in teacher workshops you know and uh, they've been loaned out for different kid programs at the country music hall of fame and the rhyme did something borrowed them for a while local schools borrow them sometimes but it's you know it's good to have a few extra banjos around the house don't you think? You, absolutely yeah. you can't have enough <laughs> <laughs> uh now you're going to think i'm being silly but mm-hmm. i'm not and i wonder is there any opportunity for older people, I mean, senior citizens and mm-hmm. up, who want to learn, you know, about the history of bluegrass or learn to play bluegrass or, or whatever, is there any scholarship or money available to help them? Mm-hmm. I know we always focus on the youth. Right. A lot of our project grants and the Schultz funds go to young people, but but really any age can apply, you know. Um, we have a, a, our not that he's old, but our, the vice chair of our board, Alan Tompkins in Dallas, you know, is an attorney uh, for the Hunt family, and he uh, has a radio show, and he, he has two bluegrass college degrees now. He's taken the classes online at Hazard, Kentucky, at the college there, and also Glenfield State uh, University in uh, our college in, in West Virginia. So I, I think you're never too old to to learn something new and, and have a new experience, a new adventure. But sure, you know, the, uh, as long as, uh, you know, a project is educational in nature or has something to do with uh, arts and culture, or it could be an academic event, it could be something to do with historic preservation and bluegrass music, the audience for that could be any age. It doesn't have to be children. And uh, with the Schultz Fund, um, you know, any person of color, you know, Asian, uh, Latino, Native American, uh, African American, you know, any age person, you know, that has a project or uh, needs some help with taking lessons or a college scholarship. And, and actually our college scholarships don't really have wording in them that says you have to be 18 to 21 years old. You could be an older student, you know, and interested in, in going back my friend Russ Farmer in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, I think, is studying bluegrass at, at Moorhead State University with all the 20-year-old kids and having a blast. <laughs> I never dreamed that a that a bluegrass day job would exist, you know, that that's something I could aspire to, to, 
to be, you know, a special projects director or the executive director of a, a bluegrass music organization. You know, I, I had my sights on being a teacher and I did that for seven years and then life kind of took a left turn and I ended up playing music for a while and writing and, and then, you know, ended up at IBMA in 94. And I was just, you know, like just pretty much everybody who comes on the staff, uh, especially the executive directors, always say the same thing. You know, this is a dream job. I love bluegrass. And now I get to combine, you know, the skills I have uh, in business and running foundations and things like that um, with uh, with the music that I love. And so mm-hmm. it is a lot of work. You know, it's a small staff and it's a heck of a lot of work. But it's, you know, it's it's something that we all care about and believe in. So it's, you know, I would actually miss work if I was on vacation too long. And, and of course, you know, like, uh, it's always more work to be gone than it is to just stay there and do the work usually. Especially That's true. Like substitute teaching and things like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, we had, you know, some good staff, some good interns and, and for the most part, had you know a lot of great people to work with on the boards and the. Committees. So all your life experiences came together and clicked. Mm-hmm. To yeah, have a, you in a perfect job. Yeah, as a writer and an educator and a bluegrass musician. And Pete Wernick used to say, you know, I think it helps that you are a musician because you know what it's like. You know, you know how hard it is and, and what struggles there are as a musician. Even though I, I've done it full time for short periods of time, but for the most part, I've done it part time. And, you know, just because I couldn't, could not, not do it, you know, just because I, it's so much a part of who I am. So, but I never had the, uh, frankly, the level of talent and, and the drive to be a star and, you know, leave my family and get on a bus and tour. And, you know, I admire people who can do that and have that level of talent and commitment, you know, Rhonda Vincent, my gosh, you know, she's driven and she's so talented, but I, you know, I, um, have found my niche, my place more behind the scenes, you know, as a writer and an organizer and, and uh, helping other people um, and their endeavors in bluegrass music, if that makes sense. And that was Katie Daly talking with Nancy Cardwell-Webster, Executive Director of the IBMA Foundation. For more information about the foundation, visit the website bluegrassfoundation.org. For more information about IBMA and all of its programs, visit ibma.org. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and katydaily.com. As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Bluegrass Stories.